Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We'll examine the West's response to the threat of chemical weapons, look in detail at the siege of Mariupol, and ask whether Vladimir Putin is making the same mistakes as Joseph Stalin. Plus, later, we speak to Dr. Thomas Clausen, history and policy advisor to the Bundestag, on the rearmament of Germany and the difference in response between the German people and their politicians to the war in Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 30, and today I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Verity Bowman from our foreign team, and Francis Sternley, our assistant comment editor. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front lines. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. Uh, again, fairly static day, characterised mostly by some uh, limited Ukrainian successes in, in a number of the a number of the areas they've been counterattacking. Um, there has been Russian uh, Russian shelling. Um, uh, they've, uh, in particular, they've been trying to encircle uh, Mikolaev uh, down in the south, which they need to get through or past, preferably through, so they don't leave themselves vulnerable, uh, if they want to go to uh, Odessa. Um, but uh, they have fallen back because of overextended supply lines. And um, British MOD is saying that Ukraine has retaken uh, towns now and pushed Russian forces to uh, 35 kilometres from Kiev. Um, so that's, that's pretty successful um, in the last few days. Uh, it, it, uh, in particular, the Ukrainians seem to be pushing for the town of uh, Ivan Kiev, which is about 50 miles north, uh, northwest of, of Kiev. It's believed to be a major Russian logistic hub. And there's been a number of uh, long-range precision strikes on that and small uh, small infantry team raids there to try and uh, to try and interdict that. Uh, but they are, Ukrainian forces are under incredible pressure in Mariupol, as we've been discussing for the last few days, uh, and also increased pressure around Chernihiv uh, and Sumy in the east. And I'll pause there. Thanks, Tom. Um, Verity, uh, Verity and Dom, would you tell us a little bit about NATO's reaction? They had a big summit yesterday and we had some words from Joe Biden. Uh, Verity, do you want to speak to this? Yeah, so as we were saying, Joe Biden yesterday declared that NATO would respond in kind if Putin resorted to using chemical weapons against Ukraine. Um, So NATO has previously suggested it wouldn't get involved, but an official did say, did hear leaders say that chemical weapons could change this. Um, Biden's pledge of proportionate response is um, a toughening of the US stance as well on Putin. So it's quite interesting in that way. Thanks, Verity. And just can I ask you, you and Dom a bit more about this in, in kind? What what can we read into that? What what might that actually mean? Well, the, the literal interpretation of it would be to respond with exactly the same nature of weapon and um, scale of weapon and the type of target. that's being interpreted as not the case here. It's being interpreted as uh, responding in kind, as in doing something uh, completely uh, unexpected, uh, out of the norms of of ordinary conflict and something that would take take the opposition, take Russia by by complete surprise. So people are not interpreting it as, you know, America are going to use their limited stockpile of of chemical weapons here that we think they've got. Um, But 
it could strike, for example, in a different theatre or a different domain. So it could do something massive in in the cyber domain or have a go in space, maybe one of the Russian satellites upon which uh, so much depends. Uh, Or it could have a a hard military effect against, let's say, Wagner Group mercenaries in uh, West Africa or Syria. So there could be a sort of um, a a response somewhere completely outside of the current theatre of operations, but not in itself such a massive strike that it is it is seen as hugely escalatory but but it it would be a a um a, a real needle in another in a different from a different domain uh just to, to signal that uh that this this was not acceptable this use of uh chemical weapons we'll come back to it in a moment but i think it's very interesting that this what's referred to as the red line about beyond which um steps would need to be taken biden's effectively blurred that red line into helpful ambiguity whereas before we just had unhelpful fudge about what what the west would actually do i think he's returned it to helpful ambiguity but i'll I'll come back to that a little bit later yes do thanks dom um francis i wonder if you had any thoughts on this just because when we're talking about the use of chemical weapons and thinking about um western leaders talking about red lines we, we we think in recent history back back to syria um so I was wondering whether you could put today's conversations in a bit of context and why these, this is such a big challenge for Western leaders. Yes, well, thank you, David, and um, thank you to everyone who's listening at home. Um, many people will remember the horrific attacks that took place in Syria during the Syrian civil war and um, the use of chemical weapons there. Um, at the time, and I know we've mentioned this previously in this podcast, there was a huge debate um, that had massive geopolitical significance on this issue in the House of Commons when um, David Cameron, the then Prime Minister, sought to intervene in Syria as a consequence of the use of these chemical weapons by um, uh, Assad and in unison with uh, with with Russian cooperation. And uh, he was promised support by the then leader of opposition of the Labour Party, Ed Miliband, um, that was then very last minute withdrawn. And as a consequence of that, the, uh, the, the vote was lost in the House of Commons. The vote of the Commons decided that it would not intervene in Syria. And uh, um, Barack Obama, the then president, remarked that as a consequence of that vote, he decided that there was not the will in the West to intervene on the issue of chemical weapons. So why this is relevant is that it has set a, a arguably has 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 um, set a precedent in terms of how the West re- reacts to the issue of chemical weapons in the respect of that it is not um, actually a red line. As uncomfortable as it may be to say that, the West has set a precedent, precedent in saying that when, if these horrific weapons are used, that it will not intervene in a military conflict. Now, of course, we are talking about a very different conflict in Syria in the respect of where it is geopolitically and geographically. Um, and also in just in terms of um, the, 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 the kind of conflict that was being fought there. Um, it would be very different, I think, if we were to see chemical weapons used on European soil um, and seeing people who, um, you know, we have clearly been following very, very closely in, 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 in these last few weeks, suddenly facing the full force of the most horrific chemical warfare. Um, and I think, as I was saying yesterday on this podcast, I think there would be then immense pressure on the West to uh, to do more to, um, uh, to to intervene if that were to occur. Um, and President P- uh, Biden yesterday made similar remarks. But what that would actually mean when we have already ruled out not only in the Syria votes, but also ruled out um, intervening in this time in, in, in the sense of, 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 of against Russian aggression. Um, I don't know what that would look like. And I don't think anybody else does either. And so it's one of the great unanswered questions, which is why, of course, we're discussing it today. Thanks, Francis. Yes, I think that brings us quite nicely um, to what Dom was mentioning earlier about the sort of the blurred lines and the help- helpful ambiguity. So, Ver- Verity and Dom, do you want to speak a bit a bit on this? What What do you mean, Dom, when you say helpful amb- ambiguity? So, the, the discussion about chemical weapons at, at its heart, if we boiled it down, we're talking about what weapons we we say um, are very nasty uh, at killing people. And which weapons we say are quite nice at killing people, and we don't we don't mind those. And of course, that's a completely morally bankrupt idea. So 
chemical weapons have been put and biological and, and nuclear, but that's nuclear slightly separate. But chem bio have been put on this pedestal of some uniquely horrific event. Um, and then it, we're almost absolving ourselves of the responsibility to deal with all the other types of munitions that kill people. Uh, now, of course, chemical weapons do hold a, a, a significant place, probably because it talks at some level in, in most people uh, to memories of the Holocaust. Yeah, that, and that horror, any, any memories of that horror um, is obviously going to elicit a reaction in us. So they are, they are viewed slightly separately, but they, they shouldn't really... And the, when Obama put his red line in 2012 and then did nothing about it when it was crossed, um, it, it almost allowed, it, it said that we would, we would, not only would we not do anything about the use of these weapons, but also that our credibility was in question. And when you're dealing with weapons of mass destruction, and particularly, I'm, I'm balancing all this against the nuclear debate, uh, it's very useful, in fact, I would say, um, necessary to have ambiguity. You don't want the other side to know exactly what you would do in certain circumstances because they can then plan against that. And you don't want to say, well, I will do this that, and the other, but I will definitely not do that because guess what the enemy are then going to try and make you do. So useful ambiguity is, is a necessary diplomatic tool. And uh, so there's two schools of thought. The first is you shouldn't ever talk about what you would or wouldn't do with, the, with these weapons of mass destruction. Um, so that there's that ambiguity in the in the mind of the of the opponent. But the other school of thought is, and regarding chemical weapons, with the history of of 2012 and the red line, that that's gone. There's no point in trying to have useful ambiguity now because actually, if you stood toe to toe, eyeball to eyeball with the Russians, they would probably know that we would would not do anything um, in response to a chemical chemical attack. So trying to maintain that that fudge was just not helping anybody. And what that also did was it then meant that when you tried to signal diplomatically about things like nuclear or other really important issues, then they would question that and they would not say, OK, they're very serious about this because we're getting all, all the signals. We know what the signs are, even though diplomatic ties are broken down and, and um, we are in competition, if not actual conflict. We do trust them on this. We think that they say what they mean here, or these are the signals we're getting. As soon as you start second guessing that, or it's open to interpretation uh, or debate, then then it's a very slippery slope. So I think what Biden has done here is effectively say to the Russians, "Okay, fellas, you do you use chemical weapons? We're we're not going to put NATO troops into Ukraine. Of course, we're not going to do that. But we might do something elsewhere, as I as I mentioned earlier on, and it and it almost regains that credibility for the West." So that when this debate dies down um, and they're sending signals about nuclear diplomacy, and of course that's in the background now as well, that those can be trusted. So as I said earlier on, I think we've, I think we've sort of wallowed around for a few years in this unhelpful fudge about saying, oh, you know, chemical weapons, bad. If you go and use them, we'll, we'll, we'll really we'll, we'll do something you're really not going to like. And, and they know that that, that didn't happen. Uh, and now we're into a place where it's a much more realistic and pragmatic place, which is not necessarily good because it, it, it for what it means for some places in that might happen in Ukraine. But it, it rests the initiative back on the international diplomacy back to the West and back to the United States so we can have a proper, sensible conversation about nuclear, for example. Just, just wanted to jump in on, on one thing that Dom said there. Um, I don't disagree with his essential point that we are in this moral fudge on the issue of chemical weapons. Um, although I would just as a as a comment on that, I would say that I thought it's, it's, it's very interesting that such was the horror of the chemical weapons used in the First World War, the mustard gas and similar, that and the image and, and the memory of that that it was never used again in the Second World War. And so there was something, a marker was laid down um, at various international um, conferences after the First World War that said that these weapons would not be used. And so I do think that there is, for right, whether, whether it's right or, 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 or wrong, there is a difference in our own mind. And that is part of our collective and historical memory of the horror of these very indiscriminate weapons. And I think that's the other point, is that this chemical warfare is now I suppose you could say well what's the difference between uh, you know chemical uh, a, a chemical weapon and indiscriminate shelling but um, there is 
in a sense, a, a, a difference in, in, in terms of how this weapon operates um, and uh, that, sh- that shelling you can stop very quickly whilst gas is not as, as, as quickly able to be, um, to be stopped. And as I say, it is indiscriminate. So I, whilst I don't disagree in any way with what Dom has said, and I think that really uh, we should be just thinking about deaths and casualties in the same way, regardless of the weapons that's caused them, I do think there is something particularly horrific about the use of these weapons. And it's speaks i think the, the the fact that in the in the worst war in human history that gas was not used because in part of the horrors of the memories of it in the first world war um speaks to that and i think we should we should forget that at our peril thanks both um just before moving on to speak i want i want us to talk quite a bit about mariupol um dom you mentioned uh, this interesting report in reuters that uh, i think this is from the u.s um defence officials, that 60% of Russian missiles are not functioning. And you said you had some more thoughts on this. Do you want to tell us, tell us what you think about that? This is a report in Reuters citing interviews with three US Department of Defence officials who said they've, they've crunched some numbers on the uh, Russian PGM, precision guided munition use. They think they've fired about 1,100 so far in this uh, in this uh, conflict. That's, sorry, that, that's all missiles, not just PGMs. Um, but they've uh, DOD was saying that up to 60%. Now, of course, up to does include every number below that. I do accept that. Please don't bash me on Twitter. But they did cite the, the figure of 60% um, on some days were were not not functioning correctly. Now, what what makes what what are you trying to achieve with a missile? You're trying to you're trying to explode it at a, at a time and place of your choosing. So there's there's a huge chain there between the actual munition itself, if that functions correctly, if the fusing works if the explosive charge all goes off in the correct sequence and so on and so forth if it gets to the right place where you've sent it if it leaves the rail of the aircraft or comes out the tube of the artillery gun or, or what have you so there's a whole chain that might go into why that figure is so high but but it is whatever wherever you want to put it it is a very high figure uh, I, i'm told anecdotally that um, in western forces we accept a failure rate or expect a failure rate of less than 10 percent for these things uh, of course all the, this is all, all all debatable about different types of munition and so on and so forth but i mean there's a gulf between 10 and 60 percent and it might be that as we've seen with the uh, the russian military performance so far uh, as a whole that the, the general standards of, of um, equipment maintenance and, and servicing schedules and what have you maybe not be uh, maybe not have been um, adhered to correctly um, in their missile and rocket departments such that these things are, are are not landing where they should not coming away correctly from their from their deploy mechanism or just not functioning when they get to the get to the target so it's a it's a it's a, it's a, a bland statistic with very little analysis behind it it's for us to to use our own eyes and ears and, and, and make of it what we will. But um, that's quite a startling statistic there from US DOD saying 60% of Russian precision-guided munitions have failed to function correctly. Thanks very much, Tom. That's absolutely fascinating. It gives us a good insight, I think, into some of the, the, the stories behind the stats. Um, let's, let's turn now and look at um, Mariupol, the southern Ukrainian city that's been under siege for the past few weeks. Verity, you've been, I know, working on this a lot. Um, before we get into the detail, could you just talk us through what's the latest from Mariupol? What should we know today? So the latest really is incredibly bleak and it is some of the worst of the war that we have seen so far. So over the last few days, we've been seeing reports of people being forced to eat dogs, drink water from streams that are contaminated by dead bodies. And we've even seen people burying their loved ones in shallow graves by playgrounds. People have really described the whole place as apocalyptic. We're seeing comparisons to Stalingrad and it is the bleakest place in the war right now. So we've also got some reports that people are being sent forcibly to Russia, some as far as over towards the Pacific Ocean. They've had their documents taken away from them and they are being rounded up off the streets. At the moment, we've got around 2,000 civilians that have been killed and probably around 100,000 that are still trapped there. You have a story leading the um, the Telegraph's website right now uh, on the video inside the 
Mariupol theatre where we think 300 people were, were killed by Russian bombardment. Could you talk to us a little bit about what, what does this video show? What does it show us about the conditions people are living in? Yeah, definitely. So the video is very bleak. Um, it focuses on groups of people absolutely covered in this thick dust, pushing towards the exit, trying desperately to get out of this hospital. We're also seeing clips of it completely destroyed. It's unrecognisable, just scraps of wood, scraps of the building everywhere and smoke rising out of it. Yeah, so as you said, we learnt today that it killed around 300 people. But what is really sticking with me right now of photos and videos coming out of it is that right outside the building, you can see children painted in huge white lettering right outside and you can still see it on satellite photos. So the fact that that was visible when these airstrikes are going on has just really stuck with me. And you've been interviewing people from from the city. What can you tell about the, tell us about these conversations? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, we're getting very chilling information coming from the city. And I have been interviewing people with whatever phone signal they can find. They're normally wandering around with their phones in the air, just trying to get what they can. And I've also been speaking to people who have left in recent days. They've all spoken of the exact same thing, which is just the sheer devastation in their city. So one person sent me a photo of a makeshift grave and in the background you can see a little girl in a pink hat. She's about to go down the slide. But in the foreground you can see a cross made out of scraps of wood with a woman's name on it saying that she died just nine days ago. And I think, again, something that stuck with me from this is that she was born in 1928. So she survived the Second World War. She survived um, the terrors of Stalin's Soviet Union and now she has been killed in a conflict ordered by Putin. And I've got another interview that will really stick with me, which is that of a boy called Alexander. He's just 21 years old. He's stuck in a basement with his mother and family. His mother is getting quite sick. And because his dad has gone missing, it is down to him to find what he can for his family, find food, find supplies. And he actually said the other day he was so desperate because his mother was so ill that he was forced to get a stray dog and they had to eat that. That's quite something. Um, thanks, Verity. Francis or Dom, I don't know if you have questions for Verity as well. Yeah, well, I'd just ask Verity, how do you, how do you approach those, uh, those interviews? Um, are, you able to, are you able to be sufficiently uh, divorced and act as a... Act as a just a bearer to the truth or or how 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 on earth, how do you record it without without I, know, I just don't know how you managed to do it um well i'm i'm contacting a lot of these people via social media and then i get into the interviews with them and it is very difficult to stay focused on what they are saying and to stay impartial but i think you've really got to strike that balance of being sympathetic to what they've gone through but also keeping the focus in mind which is making sure that you are the person that is getting the information of what they are going through out there. I also have a question which is to what extent are the people in Mariupol and in Ukraine generally aware of the world reaction? I mean I'm assuming if they've got access to social media that they are be able able to follow what's been what's been going on but I'm just interested in your take on 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 whether they are very critical of the West stance in, in, in terms of, of, of not introducing a no-flow zone, say, or if actually they've been very surprised by the scale of Western support? Well, I'd say it's actually a very mixed bag given the amount of connection they have to the outside world. So because Alexander has barely no connection at all, his view of it is all quite negative. He feels that he's been left alone and they've been abandoned in Mariupol and he doesn't really see as much help as he thinks they should be getting. But I was also speaking to another woman who managed to get out a few days ago and she really spoke that when she got access to Twitter and she could scroll through, you know, finding out what people are doing, how the world has reacted, see these reports of protest, she felt, you know, a bit of a weight had been lifted. And um, when you speak to these people, Verity, um, what's their morale? Do they, I mean, do they, do, they, do they talk about how they believe that Ukraine can win or is that just something they're not, they're not thinking about right now, they're just thinking about survival? In the early days of the interviews that I was doing, every single person would finish it by saying that they believed that Ukraine could win and they were going to keep fighting. But something that's really stood out to me over the last few days is I am hearing a lot less of that. I think that people are starting to get 
pretty desperate. They're starting to see a bit more of the reality of the conflict and that it's dragged on for a long time. They are running out of supplies. And I'm not getting those, you know, those really big assertions that, you know, Ukraine is going to win and they are going to be okay. That's very interesting because I think something that's been very noticeable from the perspective of Western intelligence and, of course, um, our politicians is actually a shift here in terms of thinking that Ukraine is not only firmly resisted up to this point, but may actually be able to win this conflict outright. And I think it's so interesting that there is that discrepancy. And it may, of course, explain, again, one of the great unanswered questions um, of last week, which is why Zelensky was making some overtures to some of the Russian demands, um, particularly around uh, NATO and um, the um, uh, certain territories within Ukraine um, as part of these negotiations that are ongoing. Um, is He can see and is part of measuring as a leader the morale of his people and the sense that, that perhaps for all of these strategic successes, that the, the, the will to resist is perhaps not quite as... As, as 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 strong in terms of the ordinary citizen, civilian population as as the military, um, we don't know, but I think that discrepancy is potentially very significant. Yeah, I would definitely agree on that. I think what we've got to remember is when we say it's turning in Ukraine's favour, we are seeing it from a very outsider perspective, whereas the people that I'm speaking to are just trying to survive on a daily basis. And their supplies are getting lower. You know, they're not hearing too much. There are internet blockouts. So really, they're seeing a bit of a different picture at the moment, even though Zelensky is pushing to keep morale up. As the blockade continues, are you finding it harder to, to find people to talk to? Yes, it's actually getting much dif- much more difficult at the moment. Um, a method that I have been using is I go via Instagram and social media, which has been, you know, invaluable in this content. We've talked about that before in this podcast. But at the moment, as phone signal goes and, you know, internet connection is really dodgy, I'm struggling to get through to people and our conversations are a lot more disjointed. But we're still pushing to see what we can get and keep going. I just have one final question from me. I don't, I don't know about Francis and Dom, of course, but from me, I'd, I, think, I think it'd be very interesting to hear from you. And you've spent a lot of time working on this and interviewing people. What, what would you want people listening who potentially haven't heard the beginning of this at all? What's, if they could take away one thing about what's happening in Mariupol, what would you want them to know? I would want them to know that there are still thousands of people trapped there and they are facing the most dire conditions we've seen in a long time. And I think, you know, we just have to remember that their day-to-day life is very different to what we are hearing. Um, you know... We're seeing world leaders come together and negotiate, but the reality is that people on the ground are still going through the worst times of their lives. Verity, thank you very, very much. Um, Francis or Dom, if you've got no further questions, I think we can go to the final section of of this podcast, um, of this this live Twitter spaces today. Um, Francis, um, from the comment desk, you guys published a very, very interesting article about... um, the thesis of which was that uh, Vladimir Putin is making the same mistakes as Stalin made in 1941. Um, I thought it was a very, very interesting article, and it speaks to a lot of the themes we've been talking about on this on this podcast um, and the echoes of history that we, we see today from the 1940s. So, so would you tell us a little bit about what, what this person was arguing and, and what, what happened in 1941? Yes, well, on this podcast, we've spoken many times. We've already made an allusion today to the Battle of Stalingrad as being perhaps one historical echo. We've referred previously to the Winter War, um, which some commentators were had picked up as perhaps being an example of a... Um, a, a smaller army, a guerrilla army that managed to defeat the might of the then Soviet Union in 1939. So that back then it was the the Finns. Um, uh, but now this has been, as I say, as you allude to, uh, another comparison has been made with the Battle of Kiev in 1941 um, by Lawrence Rees, who's a well-known historian. And uh, he argues in his piece that Stalin, through his incompetent leadership managed to lose the battle for Kiev in 1941, despite the Red Army possessing more soldiers in Ukraine than the Germans. Um, Now, interestingly, this is actually in reverse. So um, in this situation, Stalin was trying to defend 
the Ukrainian capital as opposed to take it. Um, but so in, in that sense, he's making similar mistakes, but from a different perspective. Um, and uh, Rees argues, I think, very convincingly that uh, Stalin's attempt to control this war from Moscow and, and uh, not give his uh, generals leadership on the ground, the ability to be able to make decisions uh, quickly based on the reality in front of them, perhaps in a similar way to what Putin appears to be doing, ha completely incapacitated Stalin's ability to be able to counter the German offensive. And ultimately that led to a huge military disaster, which was the biggest single encirclement in military history, where the Soviets lost 600,000 troops killed or captured. So um, this was a major uh, defeat for the Soviets, one that unfortunately we've largely forgotten in Europe because it was in has been overtaken by many other events that uh, that took place as part of the German offensive but um, uh, still a very interesting comparison there's also another piece that I'd like to make reference to not in our paper but um, in the Atlantic um, in, across the pond um, Anthony Beaver another very f famous um, military historian uh, has written an interesting piece about Putin's obsession with the Second World War and actually tries to argue that his obsession with the Second World War, um, which, of course, as we've talked about before, is known as the Great Patriotic War um, in Russia, has uh, actually distorted his uh, and, and has really crippled his his ability to be able to operate successfully in uh, in, in Ukraine. So he, for example, talks about uh, Putin's obsession with sort of tanks and seeing tanks as being this great symbol of, of strength as it was during the Second World War, despite the fact that the vehicles have actually proven to be in the modern era profoundly vulnerable to drone strikes and anti-tank weapons, um, not only in Ukraine, but also in Libya and, 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 and elsewhere. Um, and also he talks about how um, the Russian destruction of Aleppo um, and Grozny has already revealed how little their urban conflict doctrine, unlike that of Western armed forces, has, has evolved since World War Two, that they are still effectively operating in, in a way of approaching conventional warfare that is outmoded, outfashioned uh, and ultimately is leading to um, to or, or is on the path towards a, a Russian military disaster. So two very interesting pieces there that are, that are offering some parallels with the way in which um, uh, the Second World War um, can, can teach perhaps some lessons of, 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 of why as a general um, or as a, a, a political leader, it can be very, very damaging to be trying to lead um, uh, a, a, a military operation from a long distance away, as appear would be, as it would appear that Putin is trying to do in the same way that Stalin did as well. Tom, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that. So it, it seems a lot of it seems to echo some of the things you've been saying in the last few days about the Russian command structure and, and things like that. Is that fair? Yeah, it sounds like it. It sounds like it's the epitome of this very rigid command structure that we um, know. Russians have used in the past and seems like they're just repeating again today whereby there's very little initiative allowed at, at lower levels and of course if it's not allowed then it's not it's just not going to organically grow so sort of uh, battalion groups and below company platoon squad etc um, there's just no no initiative being shown that hard carder that professional um, non-commissioned officer carder um, it just doesn't seem to be there to, to, to rally the troops and keep them going to think in the in the white heat of battle about a better way to do something if they come up against an obstacle. Um, and it go, just goes back to this system whereby it's driven from the centre. Um, I mean, a bit, a, the, the one of the historical interpretations of, of Putin was that he was, uh, one of his formative experiences was, was a, as the station chief in, in um, Berlin in the... the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall and he was as the place was was descending into chaos from his point of view uh, he kept asking back to Moscow Centre for instructions and, and, and what to do and, and nothing came out because because there was utter turmoil and no no strategic direction and 
we are told this was a, a formative experience for him, that he that this idea that there was nothing at the end of the line, nothing in Moscow centre, um, has has weighed heavily on him. And, and he's vowed that will never be the case again. There will always be the seat of power in Moscow. Moscow will know everything, know more than you, see more than you, have a, have a better idea of the bigger picture, and you should defer to Moscow centre. Um, that comes unstuck when you have a very resilient and... Um, dynamic enemy in front of you messing with your plans as we as we're seeing now so i, th- I think there's fascinating historical historical ripples here one question from me before and, and i would say uh, ferity and dom thank feel free to, for, to jump in as well but one question for me would be slightly cheekily francis because obviously i think what you painted is a really compelling picture of the echoes of the past and the influences of the past on today's and what's happening today um there's always a risk of pushing this too far, is there not? And um, I, I was interested to, to hear your thoughts on at what point does does this become unhelpful? I mean, Putin is not is not Stalin. How is he different? Well, I think he's he's different in in, in many ways on an individual level. Um, I think uh, that Stalin. Well, actually, let me think about the similarities first. I think there is a curious parallel between the two, which is if we're comparing Stalin and Hitler in the Second World War, Hitler um, was somebody who um, operated with regard very little regard to realpolitik, to pragmatic political concerns. Just to give one example of that, he declared war on America when uh, after Pearl Harbor. He didn't need to do that, but he did it because of the ideological belief system that he had, which is that he thought that he was fighting a war for civilization about against decadent American Bolshevism and capitalism and of course um, as part of this overarching Jewish conspiracy that he saw. Stalin would never have made a calculation like that. He was, as I say, operating in a space that was more built around for all of his um, sociopathic tendencies um, and obviously Marxist worldview. Ultimately, he was a bloodthirsty tyrant who sought to stay in power above all else and so was much more um, rooted, as I say, in a pragmatic way of thinking about politics and military operations, one could argue. And I think that that's, that's similar with Putin as well, is that that is in no way... Um, diminishing his ruthlessness far from it perhaps it makes him even more ruthless um but i think that's an interesting parallel in terms of the way in which they are not similar um and and the ways perhaps more generally that the second world war isn't helpful the scale of this of course is on a different plane um i mean not least the numbers concerned um we were speaking yesterday about the size of the Russian army, which, while significant, I think about 900,000 men, um, is nowhere near to the scale of, um, of the size of the armies involved in the Second World War. And so it immediately means that we are operating in a different space here. Of course, the other big thing and has had a huge influence on this conflict is the nuclear element. In the Second World War, Whilst both Hitler and the Americans and the Russians were trying to develop nuclear warfare, because it wasn't on the table until the very end of the war, and of course it was only the Americans that had the capability to use them, it meant that the war could be fought on on conventional military lines, tanks, infantry, etc., that in this um, arena of war, the, the the element of the nuclear uh, threat has meant that, as we've seen from day one that Western powers, which would, I'm convinced, would have intervened in Ukraine were it not for the nuclear deterrent, um, have not done so. And so uh, it has completely transformed the way in which we think about warfare against major powers. And that's not necessarily anything new. Of course, we were confronted with that reality in during the Cold War, or should I say Cold War One, if we're now calling it that. Um, but it has changed. You know, we've never actually faced it in, a, in the context of a hot war on European soil before, which in some senses this now, has now become, certainly from the perspective of the Ukrainian people. So, History offers many parallels. They are never exactly the same. There's a, there's a, there's a mantra of that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think perhaps that's the way of thinking about this, that there are echoes, there are lessons we can draw. Um, but certainly to your point, it is not as simple as, as, as making direct comparisons because, of course, we are operating in a very different space at this moment. And that, of course, is part of the reason why um, it's important we study this very, very carefully and learn the lessons. Thanks, Francis. I, I don't want to hog um, my question. So, uh, Verity or Tom, if you've got more for Francis, please, please do jump in. 
Um, yeah, so one of the questions I had going back a little bit, do you think it's fair to say that one of Putin's biggest issues at the moment is that he's been surrounded by yes-men and that's something that we could compare to Stalin as well? Oh, unquestionably. Um, th- one of the central tenets of, of any autocracy is that, to Dom's point, they become so increasingly centralised that um, they the, the people who surround uh, the, the leader, because they receive all of their orders from the leader, they also, be- and, and the leader is all powerful, that whilst in theory you can make decisions more quickly, um, you do not make, make them as efficiently or as effectively because of the fear of what that leader will do to you. Um, that's obviously a, a point that's been made um, several times um, ever since the, the conflict uh, started. We obviously remember that that um, notorious now Security Council meeting where we saw uh, the the um, uh, sort, of, sort of senior figures of in, in Putin's regime basically lambasted by him into agreement on on whether the invasion was was justified. Um, but this has another and perhaps more concerning echo which is that or lesson perhaps which is it also makes it much more difficult arguably to take down one of these dictators why well because the people who are around him aka the rivals for power also are those who are complicit in the crimes of the dictator so it is not necessarily in their interest to overtake the leader or to overthrow the leader because they know that they are actually, because they were engaged in the, in, in the decisions that that leader made, um, that it is actually safer for them to prop up that person rather than uh, potentially overthrow them and then get face um, um, the retribution of those of, uh, in, a, in a, is a successive coup or in the case of perhaps might happen with Putin is if Putin were overthrown, um, then those around him may not be accepted uh, by the West and that sanctions may continue because of their crimes involved in Ukraine. And so there are a lot of risks for anybody who would attempt to to uh, um, to challenge Putin from within the regime. And that means it is much more difficult. And that, of course, is why it took. And I know I made this point yesterday. This is why it took so long for the West to defeat um, the Soviet Union uh, in the in the first Cold War. Um, which uh, because uh, the each lead with each successive leader, they were very aware that they uh, were relied on the support of the previous leaders and and the, and the uh, the Politburo and the people around them um, that had put them there and that they had been involved in decisions of the previous regime. So they were not willing to to dismiss those, and uh, and as a consequence of that, it wasn't really until Gorbachev came along and they had changed the values and had really truly condemned and had not been complicit in the mentality and the crimes of the previous um, uh, uh, hardcore Bolshevik or communist uh, uh, leaders that things were able to change. Um, but of course, um, from the con- from their consequences in a very negative direction because they were not able, able to hold the Soviet Union together. Can I just make a point there? I think that's that's absolutely fascinating stuff. And I'd be really interested to know from, from our, um, our US uh, cousins, uh, many many listeners here, um, wh- what they thought. I'd love to get some DMs or emails or any, anything you like. I wonder if this news, the new signal from um, President Biden we saw about the chemical weapons kind of signaled a new pragmatism. Because um, as Francis was saying, it's very very difficult for the for the, the second eleven to overthrow Putin um, if they if they themselves think, oh, Craig, what's, what's the point of doing all that and then being had up in front of the ICC myself or sanctioned out of existence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, notice uh, Sergei Shoigu is still missing two weeks later. Anyway, I move on, and I'd just be really interested to hear from our from our US uh, colleagues if they thought that. There could be if there's a new if there's a new pragmatism in the Biden administration and a new realism that they are prepared to say, OK, the whole thing about chemical weapons that we did at the start, um, if they could message some of these people and say and, and hold their noses and do business with these people to say, look, OK, look, if you if you do that, if you get into power, um, it's not ideal. We don't 
particularly like your track record, but you know, you're, you're one of the least worst options. I, I imagine they put it more diplomatically than that. That's why I'm not in the foreign office. But I just, I just love to hear from, from the US perspective whether or not they think the Biden administration is either thinking like that or, or capable of thinking like that and reaching out to this, this, this other, these, these people waiting in the wings who might be able to do something here. Um, <laughs> answers on a postcard. I just have one comment on that, which is um, if we're not or, or, the, or the US administration is not, then they should be, um, because we've talked before about the need to drive a wedge between Putin and not only the oligarchs and the kleptocracy and the Russian people, um, but... Uh, you know, everybody who is with, he needs to feel isolated ultimately. And that will mean that we will need to be looking for those who we won't like them, but people who perhaps we can uh, use or support. And of course, the Russian people themselves need to 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 be identifying these people as well. Um, it's not just something that we should be concerned with. It's, um, you know, it's for our, our Russian lead listeners too. Um and so uh, I, I think that this is, it's very uncomfortable for us because we have been, and I've, I've commented on this before, we've been operating in a space when thinking about this conflict of moral absolutes. And I think we're absolutely justified to do so when we see such horror. But we remember that ultimately there are going to have to be some compromises that are made for the, for the stability of, of Europe. And we are going to have to be thinking in terms of, 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 of who is the less bad option um, and in a, in a post-Putin world. But we may not have the luxury of that in it for, for many years to come unfortunately and so um i would just say that generally the tone however uncomfortable it may make us to feel on this um we will have to be finding some pragmatic solutions um, um because the world has now become a very very complicated place as a consequence of this conflict and it is not one that we can very simply talk about in terms of good and evil when when we are ultimately having to make some sort of uh, deal that, 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 that will not only help rebuild Ukraine, but will ensure a prolonged and protracted peace in Europe. Um, uncomfortable truths, I think. I, it'd be good to, to hear, we won't speak again as, as three until, uh, until Monday. So it'd be good to hear from each of you just your final thoughts and what to look for over the weekend. Uh, final one for me would be uh, keep an eye on Sumy, uh, the city to the uh, in the east of Ukraine that's under bombardment, not not entirely surrounded, but uh, is under I- immense pressure. There was a Russian airstrike on March 21st on the chemical plant. Please forgive me, I'm about to mangle the name, but the Novozelskia Novozelskia uh, chemical plant, and there's been an ammonia leak there. Uh, this is being so it's been suggested that this could be the start of some sort of false flag operation that Russia could, could claim that there's 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 these these mythical um, Ukrainian U.S. funded Ukrainian chemical plants, uh, and this might be the prelude to some kind of uh, chemical attack. So just keep an eye on Sumi in the east of the country. But uh, yeah, sorry to, to end on a end on a down note. But uh, no, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, yeah, I just wanted to continue off what Don was saying. Um, observers have been saying that other areas are clo- edging closer to becoming sort of the next Maripol. So this is something to really look out for over the next few days. We're going to see a lot of other cities hit very hard by bombardment. And i just like to say I'm going to keep in touch with the people that I have been interviewing and I will be bringing, them, bringing you their updates as they come. And Francis, would you like the final word? Uh, yes, I would just um, Verity very movingly spoke earlier on about um, this uh, poor uh, lady who was born in 1928, who's just lost her life in Mariupol. And we've spoken a lot about the Second World War today. And, you know, sometimes in history, the metaphors write themselves that you have somebody who has lived through the horrors of that war, the horrors of Stalin, the horrors of communism, and hoped to live in a free country um and yet has had history return in the most brutal way and they've lost their life and i think that um as i say sometimes the metaphors write themselves earlier this week our assistant comment editor francis sternley spoke to dr thomas clausen on germany's role in the west's response to putin increased spending on rearmament and the German people's response to refugees. Many listeners in Germany will have been following what's been happening in your country very intensely. Um, 
And obviously it was very striking seeing the postponement of Nord Stream 2 and um, perhaps particularly interesting uh, the rearmament of Germany to uh, spending 100 billion um, euros. Just how uh, radical a change is this, Thomas? Um, I would say it's absolutely a radical change. So when uh, Olaf Scholz, the chancellor, said this is a watershed moment, a Zeitenwende, so a turning of the times, uh, really, I think he was serious and I think he was also sort of encapsulating what uh, many Germans uh, are thinking about the current situation. However, of course, now a few weeks uh, after this uh, announcement, we can, of course, see that this is also a very tremendous challenge for German politics. So it's definitely a departure from our usual uh, security policies. It's definitely a departure of how we view the Bundeswehr and how we view our relations with Eastern European countries, with Russia, of course. It's a different understanding maybe of the threat levels. And But on, then on the other side, of course, one should also uh, remember or recall that German security politics in the last 20 years or so was very different from what uh, Scholz announced in February. And as we are getting into sort of the details and the nitty gritty of what the 100 billion additional um, funds for the Bundeswehr, the 2% of the uh, GDP spending per GDP and so forth, and what this will ent entail in precise terms, of course, then we get back into party politics, into a lot of debate on the time scale. But I would definitely say that it is a very serious commitment. And I don't think there will be a sort of going back to before uh, the 24th of February. Is that something that is shared both among the population of Germany and also the political class? Or do you think there's actually some tensions present there between the level of commitment, the rearmament and um, the weaning off Russian gas and oil? When we look at the situation now, I would believe that um, the German population in general is much more in favor for harder sanctions, for funding for the Bundeswehr, for supporting Ukraine, than, so to speak, the political class. A lot of Germans are viewing the conflict through the eyes of the ordinary average Ukrainian, which has a lot to do, of course, with the way that the uh, war has been portrayed in social media, but also simply with the fact that there are a lot of connections. People have friends, former roommates, colleagues who have some connection to Ukraine or maybe who are even still in Ukraine. And then it, it's really a war that uh, hits home. It's You hear a lot of Ukrainian now on the streets. There are refugees coming in and it becomes clear that uh, Lviv is definitely closer to Berlin than Paris. And I mean, I think, of course, looking at the map, that was always the case. But in terms of the mental map of Europe, uh, this was, of course... Cambridge and London were much closer probably to the average German than the, the places that are now being shelled in Ukraine. But this has definitely changed, I think. When it comes to the political class, of course, the sentiment is shared, but we were seeing a lot of assumptions about, you know, the new world order after, say, the Iraq war and so forth. And these assumptions are now being shattered, so, so to speak. So the idea that Germany can play a sort of always on the middle ground between Russia and America. That was a sentiment that you could, for example, hear, you know, Germany should keep an equal distance between Moscow and Washington, so to speak. And this is something that I think was ingrained at least in a certain part of the political class. So there are a lot of people now who are sort of looking back at their support for Nord Stream 2, looking back at sort of how they were dealing with uh, Vladimir Putin and it's basically a lot of sort of illusions that are being shattered. And it will definitely take some time uh, for everyone to work through it. But I think that's also similar in a way, or at least there are some parallels to, for example, how uh, Britain is looking at some of the oligarchs uh, who own football clubs and so forth. Do you think there is an appetite in Germany for, I mean, it would mean this 100 billion, that it would become the biggest military spender in Europe. Do you think there is a cultural appetite for that? And what would a German army of that scale actually look like? And what would its place be in, in, in German society? I don't think there's an appetite for sort of militarization. People are understanding that, um, you know, well-equipped armed forces are necessary for the defense of democracy and freedom. And that's, of course, a lesson that basically every European country around us has uh, learned in the uh, 20th century, either because they were... Um, attacked and invaded by uh, by the Nazis or because they were occupied by the Soviets. But Germany, alongside maybe Austria, um, did not fight for its own freedom in that sense. But I would say that 
one should be skeptical about the long durée view because the German military played a substantial role in, during the Cold War, at least the West. I mean, both Germany's had a substantial military forces, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, and the Bundeswehr was sort of an integral part of NATO's defense of uh, Western mm. Europe. Um, you mentioned earlier um, about the relationship that Germany has culturally and historically with Russia. One of the criticisms of, of, of Merkel now um, following this conflict is that she dragged Germany closer to Vladimir Putin's Russia than perhaps the public appetite was um, in her own country. Um, do you think, uh, well, perhaps you could just speak to, to that relationship with Russia. I think something that perhaps people don't quite appreciate here is that it's not as simple as thinking that Germany distrusts sort of Russians on their border because of their Cold War history, that actually there is this phenomenon of nostalgia and nostalgia for the East in, in, in large parts of, of Germany and, and amongst sizable numbers of the population. What influence does that have and how, how prevalent is it? Definitely the biggest change is sort of that we are no longer talking about German Eastern politics as being between uh, Moscow and Berlin, but that it's definitely now, and it should have happened much, much earlier, but I think we are seeing now finally an understanding that when we're talking about Eastern and Central European politics, we have to talk about Warsaw, Tallinn, Riga, Vilnius, and also Kiev. Um, but the other direction or sort of the other big shift is um, if we are sort of thinking about uh, other watershed moments, I don't actually think that Angela Merkel becoming chancellor is sort of the last watershed moment between uh, sort of February uh, 22 and um, sort of uh, whenever the last uh, shift was. Because I do think that from a German perspective, the biggest watershed moment was February 2003 when Bush uh, and Tony Blair invaded Iraq. And I think it's sort of interesting to look at the role of Angela Merkel then because it's almost been forgotten, but it was sort of the first big trauma, as one journalist called it, um, of Angela Merkel's political career. So the conservatives, the Christian uh, Democrats in Germany, they were sort of trying to tow a transatlantic line. They were very worried that Germany would lose contact with NATO and they wanted to support uh, Bush's invasion of Iraq. And Gerhard Schröder, the social democratic chancellor at the time, was very adamant that he wanted to keep Germany out of Iraq. And in the prelude to the uh, invasion, so in autumn of 2002, there was a big federal election that Schröder narrowly won. And I think almost everyone had sort of expected that uh, Schröder was loose because of his unpopular social policies and so forth. But um, he, he secured a victory. And then the leader of the opposition party, Angela Merkel, made probably a, a mistake, at least in, in terms of her popularity within Germany. She, she went to Washington. She wrote an article in the Washington Post saying, Gerhard Schröder doesn't speak for all Germans. And the big mistake uh, of Angela Merkel at the time was that Schröder definitely spoke for a huge uh, majority of Germans. And that uh, damaged Angela Merkel immensely. She was sort of seen, I'm not saying as a traitor, but definitely as someone who didn't understand what uh, sort of Germany's interests were. There was a huge amount of gratitude to, towards Gerd Schröder for keeping Germany out of that war. And uh, in 2005, so several years later, Angela Merkel only won very narrowly because there was still sort of the lingering resentment that um, she would have taken Germany into the uh, Iraq war, into Iraq. And this is also a moment, of course, where Angela Merkel um, really starts digging into opinion polls. And that's, that's been characteristic of her entire chancellorship, that she, she got public opinion so wrong in that instance and was so dangerous for her own political career um, that she was very conscious about this sort of public mindset. So when Germany stepped out of uh, nuclear energy, it was because German opinion polls are very critical of nuclear energy after the catastrophe in Fukushima. Um, similarly, the refugee crisis in, um, in August 2015, Angela Merkel was actually quite critical of more liberal um, refugee policies. And then she shifted her view. And that's something that happened all the uh, constantly during um, her time as chancellor. But that the result was sort of a very incoherent sort of security and policy because there was no sort of reflection on if we step down from nuclear power, but if we are also critical of Russia, if we, we've seen what, what happened uh, in 2014 with Crimea, um, maybe we should wean ourselves off of Russian uh, oil and gas. 
but then we're also stepping out of nuclear power that didn't fit together. And I think opinion polls or sort of a reliance on opinion polls plays a role. Do you think that, as some commentators have made in this country, and I'm sure in Germany as well, that this invasion of Ukraine repudiates the principles of almost the entirety of the Merkel era, not just in terms of defence policy, but also in terms of her approach on, on so many issues? I think it's very difficult to pin down the principles of the Merkel era. So it's, it's not clear that there are, um, that there's a sort of cohesive um, approach to international relations, say. So when I talked about the Iraq war earlier, that was definitely a moment when a lot of political commentators from the political class in Germany were saying, well, we are now living in a new era, it's multipolar, maybe Europe should play a new role, but and nothing came out of it. So that's sort of the striking thing. There was that Germany kept relying on the uh, nuclear umbrella of the United States. I think uh, at some point the United States, and that's a sentiment that was ex expressed by Trump, but also by many other um, sort of American uh, politicians, that uh, Germany is doing far too little. It's relying on America, but it's not uh, putting in the spending. It's not doing the the sort of the reflection of what it actually means to be part of the alliance. And there was, a think, a genuine exasperation um, for example, amongst Americans. Um, but there was no approach. Also, there was, I, I don't think there was a coherent sort of, there was no search for alternatives. One did rely on, on NATO. Um, when Macron tried to convince Merkel in 2018 of you know, trying a new Franco-German uh, alliance or like a rethinking of European uh, security policies, um, there was basically no reaction. So that fell flat. And we're now left with a situation where there's basically no alternative. Um, to sort of a re realignment with, with NATO and with the West. But frankly, I also don't think that's a huge uh, problem. Uh, it's rather the opposite. I think it's good if sort of the liberal democracies of the world finally come, come together again after 20 years sort of, of not an ice age, but definitely uh, of a, a bit more chillier age. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Charles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe.